This is Empowered Human Academy. Welcome home. This is about love. This is about light. This is about the idea that you, you contain everything you will ever need. And this life of yours, this is where you expand, you grow, and you remember who you are. I'm Abe. I'm Isaac. In Empowered Human Academy, we join with humans of all kinds to feel the inspiration that can only come from empowered living. The stories you hear today are unique, but the energy? The energy you hear today is yours, too. So, with hearts wide open, let's begin. Thank you for being here. Hey crew, this episode is Pay What Feels Good. Rather than pulling in sponsors and paid advertisements, we are excited to try something different. I'll talk more about this at the very end of this episode, or you can read more at empoweredhumanacademy.com. Hello, Empowered Humans. Welcome back and Happy New Year. We truly hope that you've had a cozy holiday and that you're able to find some quiet moments to set intentions as to what kind of energy you want to embody in 2021. And speaking of the new year, on January 15th, we're launching Lightword Together, an open-hearted and forward-focused mastermind experience that will gather for bi-monthly group coaching sessions. We've been dreaming about expanding the energy of Lightword into a shared online space for a while now, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. To learn more, head over to lightword.com slash together. Now, on to today's episode. This week's guest is Australia-based artist and illustrator, Shira Bentley. Shira began her career as a print artist, and her love of collaborative storytelling quickly led her to illustration. Her beautiful work transforms ideas into engaging visual stories filled with color, humor, and snippets of daily life. Shira's art has been exhibited both in memorable spots like the roadway overlooking the Sydney Opera House, as well as on the international scene. We've included her Instagram handle and website in the show notes, so you can get a taste of her incredible work. We met Shira back in February of 2020 before the pandemic lockdowns began. We instantly hit it off. Shira is a kindred soul. Our conversations easily turned into hours of getting lost in the magic, but don't worry, we capped this one at an hour. Throughout this conversation, we discuss staying true to your creative voice while also balancing your audience's needs, saying yes before you figured it all out, and maintaining your integrity by making things that you honestly like. Whether or not you identify as an artist, we think you'll find Shira's wisdom applicable, whatever your niche. Shira is deeply perceptive and has so many thoughtful lessons to share. So let's get into it. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Empowered Human Academy. I'm Abe. I'm Isaac. And this is our good friend, Shira. And Shira is calling in today from Australia. And we met earlier this year um, through a friend, and we learned about Shira and her art and her passions and just who she is as a person. And we're so, so excited to have a conversation with her today. So thank you so much, Shira, for joining us. Uh, We're really excited for this conversation to dive into a little bit about who you are, your art, and everything in between. So without further ado, Isaac always asks the first question. And the first question is, when you are thinking about who you are internally, not how you project to the world or, or how you present in any given context. Who, who are you to yourself? What words of identity do you choose for yourself? Not for anyone else, not for the sake of anyone else's understanding, but what words do you choose when identifying yourself to yourself? Mm, that's a very juicy question to start with. 
Thank you guys so much for having me as well. <laughs> we're a bit delayed, um, but here we go. Onward. Wow. Okay. Okay. I know. Technical issues are always fun. Hmm. I mean, I suppose I would just start by choosing a variety of words, descriptors, because I think that people aren't always all one thing. And I've always had a lot of different interests that I tend to kind of identify with. But overarchingly, I would say uh, compassionate. And I'd say connection is a really big part of my experience. And this year more than ever has made me realize how much connecting with people, people I love and just people, you know, strangers, how much that has changed and how important that is for me and what kind of a pillar stone that is for me of my identity, being able to connect with people, communicate with people. And that's a big part of what I do as well with work. So connection, story, compassion, curiosity, these are kind of words that I I would align with and kind of how I show up in the world and how I shape my experience. Mm. We were talking just before this about how some of those things, we weren't talking about them, you know, in terms of things you identify with, we were talking about how some of those things play into how your life has adapted to the COVID-19 reality. How have you chosen to focus on those things and to bring, like, keep those things as themes in your life at a time when connection is... I'm not going to say harder, but it's definitely different. What has that been like for you? Yeah, well, we talked a little bit before about um, reprioritizing, realizing the importance that that plays in my life and my experience has definitely encouraged me to facilitate more scenarios in which that's possible. So, you know, initially in Australia, we've been very lucky um, with this pandemic in terms of um, the impact that it's had. It, it has been, you know, awful here and everywhere. Um, but in terms of isolation and not being able to connect with others in my state, um, I'm in Sydney, which is New South Wales, we, um, we were very fortunate. So we did have um, a bit of a strict lockdown for, for about, you know, four to six weeks. And during that time, I would go outside and I would go for walks. We were allowed to do that. And I'd see other people walking and, you know, I just kind of stop a distance from them and have a little conversation. And Mm -hmm. that's something that I never used to do before. I'm very outdoorsy and I love hiking and walking, but it's pretty common when you're on the street to kind of smile and say good morning and you just kind of continue on. But stopping and having an actual conversation with a stranger or many conversations is unusual. So that was a really interesting kind of shift that I noticed in my experience and the experience of others. And realizing as well that particularly if I had a conversation with someone who, like an an elderly person who was sitting on their front porch, perhaps that's the only interaction they had that day. And so the weight of it and the meaning of it was so much more than it would have been otherwise. It's a much less connective reality, but it also fosters opportunity for a much more deeper and meaningful connection as well. So that was really amazing. And, you know, the absurdity of the ways in which you find ways to see the people that you love as well, going to national parks and sitting on the ground a couple of metres away from the people that I love, you know, stretching because you're allowed to be outside to exercise was interesting and humorous you know you can kind of find like the the humor in it 
So, yeah, it's been an interesting time of kind of oscillating between understanding why we're more isolated and the weight and heaviness of that, while also just being flooded with immense gratitude for having these amazing people in your life that you do hold so dearly and that you care so much about. It's been a time. (laughs) For someone who does identify so strongly with compassion and connectivity, I'm curious specifically about what it feels like to maybe be surprised by opportunities for more of that than you expected in in scenarios that you didn't expect, like like Mm. passing someone on the street or someone on their front porch. To be surprised by something like that, which connects so closely to how you are internally, what does that feel like? Pretty overwhelming. Some things that were happening here is that children were using coloured chalk to write messages of encouragement on the sidewalk and putting their teddy bears on their windowsills. So as well, even if you didn't walk past another person, there were these messages of people on the street. And, you know, I'd never seen anything like that before. It was was just really moving, really overwhelming. So, yeah, I would say overwhelming but also encouraging. You know, it, like, it's, it's kind of interesting to find um, optimism and hope mm. at, in this time, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, uh, we met in yeah, February yeah. when we were down in How was that recent? Uh, Australia. And we met you through a friend and I, you know, we had just hours and hours of just amazing conversation and you're an artist and mm-hmm. um, we consider ourselves artists as well. And just really want to know kind of connecting back to what's overwhelming yet hopeful. How has this year informed your art and how has it impacted you as an artist? That's a really interesting question. You know, I'm sure that it has in a variety of ways. I'm not sure that I'm entirely aware of it. Mm -hmm. I've carried this idea for a while that every um, artwork is a self-portrait, which Mm -hmm. that's not mine. That was Oscar Wilde. Um, And I think it's very, very true. I think that any any form of expression is going to carry some of you in it. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's really unavoidable. So I can't say that I'm entirely conscious of where it's taken my work, um, particularly because the work that I've been doing is client-facing. So um, as an illustrator, I'm communicating someone else's story and my story will obviously attach to that. But mm-hmm. ultimately, it's about the collaboration and not so much about me. So, I mean, I have found myself expressing myself in a variety of other ways as well that aren't specifically aligned with my work or with art Hmm. but just yeah like through kind of movement curiosity exploring exploring new things exploring the world I've been outside a lot cooking (laughs) which has been a really interesting trend that I've kind of seen you know on social media the way that we all seem to respond to to being with ourselves is very similar, you know, which was, and it was really, it was so intersectional. It didn't really matter like what mm. your race or what country you were in or what gender you, you identify with. We were all kind of doing the same things to self-care and manage, which I just found really fascinating as well. I mean, I think so many pursuits are creative. When I think about my art practice, it's so broad. It's not just the, um, the work I'm producing. It's just 
the way I live my life. <laughs> mm. Can you share a little bit about how art impacts your life on the day-to-day? Um, how outside of work it does that? It inspires me. You know, I would say that's, that's the biggest impact that it has for me. I find it to be wondrous in the same way that I find so many different acts of creation to be so wondrous. There's something just joyful about it and playful mm-hmm. about it. And that just makes me feel really happy when I walk into um, an art space or if I'm experiencing an installation, it makes me smile. And I think that that's, that's kind of the beauty of it. You know, art is really evocative and you're not always going to have a positive emotional response to the art that you're observing, but I think it's pretty special that somebody can share their story in a visual way and move people in some sort of direction. So if ever I'm feeling kind of flat or stuck, I find that experiencing some form of art makes me feel a little bit more alive, I guess, a little Mm. bit more present, a little bit more um, curious, a little bit more excited. Hmm. That's beautiful. Speaking of experiencing art, it was communicated to us when we first met you that your art was displayed on the Harbor Bridge across from the Sydney Opera House. Is that, is that correct? It was displayed on the roadway that is connected to the Harbor Bridge. So yes, Amazing. <laughs> but, not, but not the bridge itself. It was, um, yeah, it was, on, it was on the roadway overlooking the Opera House for an event. Yeah, Super New Year's cool. event. Yeah. So tell me, I mean, I think like, it's really awesome that so many people got to experience the mm-hmm. art that you created and because that's such a highly trafficked area. I just wanted to know kind of what your experience was like seeing your art as you drove through such a busy part of such an iconic city. So all the roads were closed. So it was for a New Year's Eve event. It was 1819 New Year's, which, you know, in is a pretty big deal Um, and they do a lot of fireworks off the harbour bridge so that entire area is just closed um, to traffic you can't actually get in there and I was commissioned by Roads and Maritime Services which is the division of New South Wales government to produce a really large-scale piece to be installed on the road it was 200 metres by 4 metres I'm not sure what that is in miles but wow it was very big and they had an event kind of on top of it. So people were um, standing on the artwork and looking at the Harbour Bridge and looking at the fireworks. And honestly, when I was approached to do that job, it was, there was a little bit of imposter syndrome going on. I was kind of shocked by it that I was getting this opportunity at this point in my career. Like I'd already had some pretty great opportunities, but this was just such a big, large-scale, public thing. And it almost astounded me that I was able to rise to the challenge because I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to, but I said yes. And I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to figure it out. I'm just going to say yes, even though I'm not sure if I can do it. And the worst that can happen is I don't manage to, to get it done or the client isn't happy. And the best that can happen is I succeed. So, and they were happy and I was happy and, Mm. you know, the photos are really cool and 
It was yeah. a pretty special moment. We'll be sharing, hopefully, the photos along with this podcast episode, just so people can see it. But can you kind of explain what it looked like? Because I, I, I haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and kind of what it took to get you from imposter syndrome to like actually achieving something you're excited about. Okay. So the concept was to do essentially a roadmap of New South Wales, an illustrated roadmap. So it wasn't going to be the scale. It was going to have to be very creative because New South Wales is kind of like this and the artwork was, you know, <laughs> like that. So squishing, you know, the coastline and everything into that is, you know, you, you got you to gotta get a little creative. I wanted to do that and then have these illustrated icons. So essentially because there were these illustrated icons from all over the state. Um, Someone could be in the Blue Mountains or they could be in like Byron Bay, but they're also in Sydney and looking at the Harbour Bridge. So it's kind of cool to say like, I watch the Sydney fireworks from Byron Bay kind of thing. And when I was first approached to do the job, I didn't know who the client was because when you have a really big client like that, there's usually a go-between. And so I was working with an advertising agency that had been hired by Roads and Maritime Services. So they contacted me and they said that they needed to do a large-scale site activation. I didn't realise it would be quite so large and quite so public, but they told me a little bit about the brief and it sounded cool, so I said yes. And then I went into a meeting and I sat across from the project manager and a few other staff members and they told me what it actually was and who the client was. And I remember in my head thinking, oh my goodness, I've already said yes to this and this is huge and I don't know that I can do this, but I just sat there nodding my head um, and asked relevant questions as though it was any other sort of job. Um, and then I drove home just shaking. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> during the concepting phase, you know, with what I do, sometimes concepting is a real struggle. There's a lot of mental resistance and trying to get my head around taking the idea from the client into a visual narrative is really hard and sometimes it's really easy and it feels really intuitive and there's lots of flow and it just happens and this was the former so lots of struggle lots of I don't know that I can do this like I don't think there were any tears but I was probably close to and the fear of kind of being found out as this imposter essentially Mm But I just kind of kept going. I just thought, you know, well, what are, what are my options here? I can sit in that and I can self-identify with those stories and not even really show up or try. Or I can keep just chipping away at it until I find something that I like that inspires me enough to keep going. And that's what I did. And I ended up producing something I really liked. And I sent that to the client as my first draft and they liked it. And we just collaborated from there. And sometimes I find that it's just getting that first little positive feedback, either from yourself, because you you do something and you like it, you're responding to your own work, or you get some positive feedback from a client or a friend or a loved one or someone whose opinion you care about. And that helps. I think, you know, when you can't be your own cheerleader, having somebody else who can do that for you is wonderful, but ultimately we have to do it for ourselves. That makes sense. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm struck by the clarification that it, you may be responding to your own work versus making it for someone. That seems that seems useful. And and given that we're talking about like responding and the fact that with this particular piece you had so like your audience was so large, you had so many people. And given you know how, how long you've been doing this work, audiences come in all shapes and sizes. And taking this as broadly as we can, what does it mean to have an audience? Is it is it important? What is that? What does it mean to you to know that somebody will be reacting in any way to something that you're making or putting out into the world? First and foremost, although the work that I do is, it definitely is collaborative and I want my clients to be happy. I really strongly align with the feeling that I need to like it. (laughs) So I'm like my first audience. It needs to pass me before it goes anywhere. I wouldn't send something off to a client that I wasn't happy with. And I have very high standards for my own work. So it's almost kind of using that standard helps to give me the confidence that it's going to be received well because I'm my harshest critic. So if I like it, surely um, the client's going to like it. So that helps me to kind of feel confident in what I'm producing and putting out there. There is always this kind of fear, almost of rejection when it comes to presenting your work either to a client or to an audience because before I was working as an illustrator, I was producing self-directed project-based artwork that I was displaying in galleries and that as well carried that that fear and that weight of rejection because the idea that you put something out there and somebody would be dismissive of it or just think, you know, that's rubbish can be really heartbreaking when we talk about this idea that every artwork is a self-portrait, it's your self-expression, it's meaningful to you. So firstly, I consider myself and how I feel about it. And then when it comes to the audience, it really, I think it really does matter um, how it's received, especially when it comes to illustration, because illustration is not just an artwork, it's, it's a visual story. You're trying to communicate a message, it has narrative. So if that isn't picked up on by your audience, you've kind of failed to a degree. It's not, it's not really enough for it to be engaging. It almost needs to have these little like Easter eggs of meaning and that's what makes it engaging. So I like to think about who's going to be looking at this, who's going to be engaging with it, what is that engagement going to look like, and then kind of work to what I think they might like to engage with essentially. So with that uh, roadwork piece, it was a very large demographic, as you said, and I was briefed that there would be a lot of families as well. So creating something that was going to be visually engaging and interesting for adults and children was kind of what, what I was focused on. And that really came down to the way that it was styled, but also the elements that I chose to include in terms of icons. So mm. it's interesting. There's a lot more to it than just creating a beautiful image. But that's what I love about it. It's challenging, it's expansive, and, you know, those things excite me. Yeah. For somebody who is is cognizant of the idea and you hold the idea that every artwork is also a self-portrait, what does it mean to do a self-portrait with the audience's set of lenses in mind? How do you show up in work when you know that it is going to be received through, you know, a certain set of lenses? Yeah. What does that mean? So it's interesting. It's... It can be tricky at times to maintain the integrity of you, your voice, while also meeting the needs of the client and getting the message to the audience. 
So it, it's very dependent. It's kind of like project by project. I think that as an artist or as a creator, your voice is always going to be in it, regardless of what the brief is or what the project is. It's kind of unavoidable. So I know that at a very base level, I'm, I'm there, I'm in it. And especially if I like it, which can also be tricky at times because sometimes clients will ask for things that I don't agree with. So it's kind of navigating that. How can I show up for myself while also meeting the needs of my client? I don't really have a straightforward answer to that question. It's, it's kind of tricky and it's a very case-by-case kind of basis. But I think, you know, just maintaining your integrity as much as you can, being true to, to who you are, to what excites you. And again, always asking myself the question, do I like this? Do I want to align with this as something that has been produced and is going to be out there with my name attached to it? Am I happy about that? I've been pretty fortunate. I never found myself in a situation where I've produced something that panned into a client that I didn't like. We're usually on the same page and it comes down to really good communication. You talked a bit about maintaining your integrity. What does maintaining your integrity look like to you? What does it feel like? And how do you know to trust that compass? For me, that shows up in a few different ways. One of which are the jobs that I will say yes to and the jobs that I will say no to. So I hold my values very close to my heart. They're a big part of how I self-identify. and. I've been approached to do jobs that I just didn't agree with. And so I said no. And so in that respect, that's me upholding my integrity because I care more about aligning myself with people who share my values than I do about work. So there's that. In terms of artistic integrity, making sure that what I produce is something that I am going to like, I would say, is kind of what it comes down to at a base level because Mm. I need to be happy about what I put out there if it's representing me. And, you know, like a, a part of what I do, I suppose, is explaining to clients why I make the decisions that I make so that we're on, they're on board with me. And that's kind of what I mean by, by good communication. If I want to make sure that the outcome is something that is going to align with who I am, how I see my work and where that value is, then just being really open, honest, vulnerable with clients and saying, you know, I know that you you think you want to do that, but I don't think it's going to work. And for these reasons, I will create something for you to show you why it doesn't work if you want to do that, but it's going to set us back a little because it's it's not what you want. And that's kind of... (laughs) That happens sometimes because they've hired me because they're not visual thinkers. So they can't visualize it. They'll tell me what they want and I can visualize it. And then they'll say that they want something which is definitely not what they want, but they can't see it yet until Mm. I deliver it and they don't like it. (laughs) Mm. So um, I think that's quite a common issue for designers Mm. and illustrators as well. Kind of Mm. knowing immediately when something is not going to work. But sometimes you just have to show them that it doesn't work because they won't listen. I guess it's standing up for yourself is what it comes down to. And I find this really fascinating because I I view and I see this as there's a common thread between all of the things that you're uh, kind of sharing with us. I sense a level of confidence. I sense a level of self 
understanding. It's really an amazing privilege that you have the opportunity to say no to some clients and yes to some clients. And it's also like, takes a lot of understanding yourself and what feels right to you in order to be like, this feels good or this doesn't feel good. And I just want to know, have you always been like that? Because I feel like a lot of people and myself in the past as an artist, I struggle with that confidence in like standing up for myself or saying yes to uh, what I want and no to what I don't want. Have you always been like that? And if yes, like teach us how and to, and if you haven't, how have you uh, kind of strengthened that muscle for yourself? I was not always able to do that for myself. I spent a lot of time, not just in work, but in life, thinking that I needed to be amenable always. <laughs> and it just didn't serve me. And I think that you can only participate in something that doesn't serve you for so long before it no longer becomes an option. So there was kind of no other way eventually, you know, when something just doesn't feel right, it doesn't feel right. So that, that was a matter of practice. I think the first time that I, I can't exactly remember the first time it happened, but I can remember moments when I was really scared to tell a client that their vision didn't look good and wasn't going to work. I remember writing the email and being very apologetic and then editing it and just being very matter-of-fact and realizing, you know what, they've hired me for my expertise. I know what looks good. I know what doesn't. How closely held this idea that they've just come up with is. I'm making some assumptions that they care very much about this. Maybe they don't. So I think at that point, I was just generally starting to get a little bit curious about where people are at. And recognizing that, you know, if you're not too sure, rather than making an assumption, asking. So as soon as I started to get a little bit more curious, things changed a lot for me. And, you know, with that email, I just ended up saying, I tried it. It didn't work. Um, I think this is a better option. Let me know what you think. And they were really happy with what I sent through. And I was happy with it too. So, and, and that's kind of, you know, it's kind of little moments like that, where you stand up for yourself a little bit and you see that there is no resistance and that people are with you and that you can have a conversation. It doesn't need to be a big struggle. People aren't necessarily going to be offended or upset with you. And that gives you the confidence to just keep doing that. So that's kind of how, how it worked for me. It was just little moments over time that built up my confidence to stand up for myself and what I thought and felt. I mean, if there were an easier path there, <laughs> that would be great. I can't share it because I don't know it. But um, yeah, it was just, it was lots of little inputs over time and also exposing myself to, to really great thought leaders around vulnerability and worthiness and leaning into those uncomfortable spaces, I suppose, taking a little risk. Because, you know, so often it pays off. I mean, I can't think of moments where I took a risk and it didn't pay off. And I can think of moments where I took what I thought was the safe route and I was much worse off for it. So I think choosing yourself is never the wrong move one way or another. Hmm. That's beautiful. I'm super taken by the idea of curiosity as almost a frictionless path to finding 
your own best and most honest expression in the situation. I know for myself, like I, I came from a place too of thinking that I never, that I always needed to be amenable to the situation, that I always needed to be somebody who like, I thought that offering no resistance on my part meant automatically saying yes to everything. And so the idea that using one's own voice doesn't, like there may not be resistance on the other end. And in fact, curiosity may be a resistance-free path to mm-hmm. that full expression. That's a super cool idea. So thank you for that. Can you tell me where, like it said, how you do one thing is how you do everything. Mm-hmm. How does that kind of curiosity mm-hmm. play out in other areas of your life? I tend to have more meaningful conversations with people now. I've always wanted to. And, you know, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, connection is a really big and impactful part of my life. But I would say that any time I find myself in a situation with someone where perhaps we don't agree or I'm noticing a strong emotional response to something that I'm witnessing or hearing. Taking the route of curiosity has always resulted in a more connective, better outcome. I would say mostly with people, the way that I connect with others, but also with myself. So there have been, and this year has been a good example for me of this, um, as I've been reprioritizing and, you know, leaning in a little bit more to uncomfortable spaces. When I've noticed that something feels uncomfortable or scary, getting curious with myself and asking, okay, like, what's the fear? What am I concerned about? There's a podcast that I love uh, called the Mark Groves podcast. The host is Mark Groves, wonderful human. And he said that whenever he's faced with a difficult decision, he asks himself the question, will this result in expansion? And if the answer is yes, then his answer has to be yes. Because so often we're fearful of things that are going to be so wonderful and healing and expansive for us. And that's what I want for me, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think, and that's what I was saying about thought leaders who inspire me. Brene Brown is also a huge one and she talks a lot about curiosity. That's where I got the idea from. And she talked about how she used to engineer smallness in her life because she was so fearful of failure and it kept her safe from failure, but it kept her apart from growth and fulfillment and wholehearted living. And I identified so much with what she was sharing about that because, you know, that's a very perfectionistic path to take where you always make the safest choices, where you're always very amenable to people, but it doesn't, it doesn't serve. So yeah, that's kind of where that comes from for me and how it's kind of manifested in my life. It's been huge. It's been life-changing really, which sounds kind of um, like an exaggeration, but I mean, our life experience is shaped by our perception. And if you can shift that, then you can change everything, right? 100%. I've been thinking a lot about how we like to stay in our own known fears because we know them the best and they're just the most comfortable and the newness Mm. of something that we don't know yet or new things that might be scary are oftentimes probably less scary. Like I've had some shoulder pain for four years and I was used to the shoulder pain, the specific type of pain. And this one treatment that my physical therapist gave me dry needling, you know, where they manipulate some of the muscles to like release the tension. I was so scared of that, that I chose my pain, my known pain 
versus actually stepping into this unknown pain that actually was yeah. a lot less tense and less hurtful than the four years of pain that I was in. And that has like radically changed my mindset. It's like, okay, well, we stay in our own known pain and there's so much um, on the other side of that that is so much more expansive, like uh, that one podcast host said. So thinking of this past year, you talked about being in vulnerable spaces and having to shift kind of your experience a bit. What have you faced this year that was kind of tough to face? How has that vulnerability with yourself kind of allowed for healing or uh, empowerment or goodness in your life? Um, so a few ways. Something, so I've been rock climbing, as you guys know. We went rock climbing in, uh, in Sydney when you were here. Um, I've been climbing for about 10 years, but I only started climbing outdoors about four years ago. And I don't have a great deal of experience outdoors. Well, I do now because I've been investing a lot of time in that this year. But prior to that, not a huge amount, not four years worth. And so it was something that I still felt kind of fearful about. And particularly because I have been climbing for a long time, um, a lot of people that I know that climb have also been climbing for a long time and they do have that experience. So what came up for me is something that comes up for me in a lot of different areas, which is um, the fear of looking foolish and the fear of failure. Yes. (laughs) And so that kind of kept me from putting myself in situations where I would be revealed for my lack of experience. Mm -hmm. But because of that, I didn't get to do this thing that I love so much. And I was the only one standing in my way. You know, I made up a story that um, I would look foolish, that, you know, there would be judgment because I've been doing this thing for so long, but, you know, I don't have the technical know-how to actually do it in real life. And so, this year when we were allowed to go outside and touch things, um, I started climbing outdoors with some friends. I know it sounds ridiculous, but you know, this is the world we live in. <laughs> I started going outside and climbing with friends and realized that I knew a lot more than I thought I did and that they were wonderfully supportive and that it was an incredible experience. And I didn't feel foolish. I just felt amazing. It served me so much to do that. And it's been this huge, invigorating, exciting thing that I can enjoy now. And, you know, that just took a little bit of vulnerability, a little bit of a risk, and the payoff was monumental. So that's, that's been a big thing for me. Some stuff with, some things with work have been great again. You know, we were talking before we started recording about how I was kind of reprioritizing and taking on a little bit less work or um, putting myself forward for less and just allowing what came to come. And the universe delivered, even though I wasn't asking, choosing to say yes when I had kind of told myself that I was going to be doing less initially at the time felt like perhaps not the right move or, you know, I didn't really have a strong, a strong feeling or a strong knowing about it it felt a little bit risky because I told myself we're going along this path, you know, and that's what you were saying, A, with um, certainty, choosing the certain, I know what things are going to look like if I know how my week is structured, if I know what the jobs I'm doing are. So to to choose to take on more felt a little scary, but, you know, I produced some of my favorite work in the last couple of weeks, um, but I've ever done. And 
that was hugely exhilarating and exciting um, and it was a really wonderful creative relationship that I cultivated there. So, yeah, I think, you know, flexibility, which is, again, what we were talking about earlier, is kind of huge and I align so much with what you were saying before about choosing a certain discomfort over potential wonderful uncertainty. You know, it's... um. Mm-hmm. It feels easier. You know, what's familiar feels better, even though it's not necessarily what's best for us. As we get closer to the end of the conversation here, I want to I want to mm-hmm. ask about two expressions that you've used a bunch throughout this conversation. You've talked several times about finding something just simply that you like. And also you've talked about things that serve you or do not serve you. Can you define both of those and relate them if they're related or not and tell me why mm-hmm. they're important? Okay. So something that I like, for me, when I'm referring to that, it's something that I relate with. So something that feels right to me when I think about the gut feeling, you know, the bodily feeling, the bodily reaction to to it. Because sometimes we think we like something that isn't actually going to serve us, which brings me to what serves and doesn't serve. So your I suppose I think of it in terms of the truest expression of who I am, the way that I want to be in the world, the way that I want to show up. And does it facilitate that? Does it align with that version of myself? Is this a path where I'm going to be able to be in my integrity, where I'm going to be able to honor my boundaries, where I'm going to be able to connect with people in the way that I like? Is it going to leave me feeling energized and fulfilled and happy and joyous or is it not? And so that's kind of what I mean in terms of something that serves me and something that doesn't serve me. I have certainly taken a path in the past. It wasn't even that I didn't realize that it didn't serve me. I didn't ask myself the question. I didn't get curious. I just, you know, I chose that familiar discomfort because it was familiar, which felt safe but it wasn't expansive. It was definitely reductive. And, you know, that high energy, fulfilled, joyous um, experience is what serves. Then the opposite of every, of all of that is what didn't serve. And that's how it left me feeling. So again, I think you can only do that um, so many times. It becomes like a self-limiting course of action, right? Like Mm. we we're at capacity at some point. So it's just about choice, really. I was talking to Isaac about that this morning, actually, about how there are some thought patterns in my life that I'm just over because, like, I thought that this, like, familiar beating myself up or, like, this familiar pain that I'm talking about would, like, serve me. And it just doesn't anymore. And that's, like, I'm just so over it. And I'm, like, you come to a point where you just have to move on. Um, and what happens after that um, is really beautiful because there's only so much kind of shit you can take in any part of our, your life, right? Until you, until you say, this is too much and it is time for me to move on from this. So I really appreciate that perspective that you have. We have two final questions. Second to last, the penultimate question is, what does an empowered Shira look like and feel like? Mm, Okay. An empowered Shira 
is somebody who is comfortable and ready and willing to show up, is fully aware and cognizant of her worth, who isn't scared to say the uncomfortable thing, who will choose honesty over comfort and choose herself always. It's beautiful. And lastly, what do you know for sure? Okay. You know what I've realized is the only thing I know for sure that this Mm. year has taught me, that the only constant is change. Mm. That's it. I don't think that I have ever learned a lesson so hard that nothing Mm. is guaranteed and that everything is always uncertain. And I think I definitely used to live my life thinking that if I took certain steps, there would be a particular outcome at the end of those steps. And that's just not the case, Mm. Uh, which is a hard hard lesson to learn because it's kind of, you know, how do you show up and strive with the knowledge that if you're striving toward a particular goal, there's no guarantee that anything you do will take you there. So the way that I navigate it is, staying grateful in the present, the present now, because if things are constantly changing, then that's really all that we have. So I check in with myself every day and I see how I'm feeling and, you know, what I hope for that day rather than making some grand plan of, you know, several months from now, a year from now, five years from now. That's just not how I live my life anymore. Just seizing the day, um, and then doing the same thing the next day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That completely mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your time. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing of yourself. Yeah, this was uh, an incredible conversation. It went by so fast. All these conversations go by so fast. We really appreciate your heart and how you look at the world. And as we did in Australia, we could just talk for hours and hours um, and just talk about life and art and perspective. And we really appreciate your perspective and feel like a lot of people can learn from you through this conversation. So thank you so much, Shira, for your time and for your heart. We appreciate you. And yeah, that's a wrap. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I always love talking to both of you. You are beautiful and I just love your light and energy and curiosity and there's never enough time. And I just love you both. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. This podcast is the work of Lightword, our company, named for that toward the light direction which informs every single thing we do, including money, which means, like everything else, the way we earn revenue as a company is not based on industry norms. It's based on what feels deeply right and aligned by passing through the door that feels like it has more behind it, not less. And the way we keep this podcast going is all Lightword. It's pay what feels good. It's an exchange of value between you and us. We're keeping conventional podcast advertising totally out of this. Here's how Pay What Feels Good works. We give you this episode because it feels good to do so. And then you consider, honestly, what number of dollars this episode is genuinely worth to you. I do not care if that's $3, $1,000, or literally $0 and a heart emoji, as long as that trade genuinely makes your day better. The energy there is the entire point, and that is what we're building our business on. 
No advertisers, no selling your attention, just you and us trading value in a way that builds us both up. So whatever the number, when you're done listening, head to empoweredhumanacademy.com and hit the pay what feels good button. We use this policy across our company's work, and I'm excited to bring it here to the world of podcasts. This is us voting for the world we want to see. Y'all, the whole point of everything is to open up ourselves in all the fullness we are made for, and then to create, create, create with everything that is real and true and bright. That's the work of a life. That's what we're working on. And you're here because you feel that for yourself, too. And we believe in you completely. Thanks for joining us this round. And hey, for every conversation in this series, including this one, we've assembled a downloadable set of notes, table questions, a journal prompt, and some action steps that you can use to bring the energy and the lessons of this conversation home to your own life. Head to our podcast website, empoweredhumanacademy.com. Hey, thank you for being here. Now get out there and do something that feels exactly like you. We will do the same. And for us, that includes bringing you the next conversation. We cannot wait. Have an awesome, awesome day.